almost live. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, my guest today needs no introduction. He is a multiple New York Times bestselling author and a very popular guest on this show. And today he's going to be doing a fabulous presentation that I saw him give the Lifestyle Medicine Institute. And it's about self-destructive eating and the social pressure to eat dangerously. Please welcome Dr. Joel Furman. Thanks for coming on. My audience loves you, Dr. Furman. We're so uh, blessed to have you come on occasionally. Thank you, AJ. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, you, you know, you have gotten so mellow since you moved to California. <laughs> well, I'm getting older, I guess. You know? <laughs> no, but don't you think it's, don't you think it's the nice weather and the, it's the less stress living here? Uh, I do. I properly do. But also it's that I'm not writing books anymore, not working 13, 14 hour days, you know, seven days. I'm more, I have a more relaxed work schedule. I think that's maybe it. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Well, well for hiking and swimming and, you know, skiing and tennis and working out more and sleeping more time, less work, more recreation. You, know? you just seem so happy. Yeah. I do love it here though. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Welcome to California. I've known I've I've known about this state my whole life because I'm 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 a resident and, and I can't imagine living anywhere else. So you're you know it's it's funny. I, you probably don't know some of the people in the food addiction world because they're not plant based, but they, there are these groups of people like you know that they believe in it just like you do. But Dr. Furman, so many people don't believe in it I, in, in the plant based world. In other words, they just don't believe that food is a addiction is a thing. That's crazy. I mean, why do people why do people eat self foods that we know are self destructive? And why is anybody overweight? Do people want to be overweight? I don't think they do, but they say that because it doesn't have the same degree of like, for example, like detox, like for example, with alcohol or hardline drugs, uh, you know, when you detox off food, you you don't die. If you know, detoxing off the foods, a person's not going to die. So they feel therefore it doesn't meet the criterion of an addiction. Yeah, you don't die when you detox off cigarettes and, you know, steroids and alcohol either most you know but in any case you know food addiction is the most deadly addiction on the planet and it kills almost everybody of mm -hmm. cancer heart attacks strokes you know but anyway we'll talk about it we'll talk about the detox from food right that's what i love about your work because you believe in it you write about it. i mean i i know this is the only book that wasn't a, a new york times bestseller but it's my favorite fast uh, fast food genocide i it's the best book it's a book about food addiction is what it is yeah, yes, it is. It's a very important book. And of course, it's it's interesting that that one is not the bestseller, you know, is not a bestseller. But in any case, um, I'm very blessed to have seven New York Times bestseller and to have my PBS television shows that reach millions and millions of people. You know, can you imagine that PBS made $70 million on my television shows? $70 million. That's incredible. They didn't give you any of it? No, none. It's not fair. They could be giving you 10%, 7 million. But you know what's funny is that think of they they make their money by giving by sending my books and my tapes and my videos and my shows to people. So just think of the, the amount of people across the United States that got my information. $70 million worth of products from PBS is just an amazing amount of outreach. So I'm very blessed to have reached so many individuals. You know, That's incredible. Do they rerun it from time to time? They do. They even rerun it from time to time. They Did told me that I've been on television more than Oprah has. That's amazing. Did you have to audition for that? Yes. I, I went to San Francisco 
and there were 10 other physician authors, and they all gave us a 10, a 20 minute slot for a, you know, a test show, a test market show. And they put me in a room with three robot cameras and no people. So I start, so I start talking and presenting to these robot cameras. And after about five or 10 minutes, I say, this is no good. I'm not like passionate and excited and funny. I can't, I'm not an actor. I can't do this to a camera. Get me some real people. So I said, can you do this over again and put anybody in the room with a, you know, person cleaning up around here or working this, you know, the, anything just so they sat a few people in the room. So I had some people to look at and speak to. And then, um, and my test show, of course, beat out any other doctor there by a lot. And so they gave me in the second place finisher their own show. You know what I mean? And then, yeah. and then my nice. show became one of the top 10 PBS fundraisers of all times. And the, so my show did very well. So they continued to give me shows, um, which I didn't have to pay anything for the show. The other doctor shows have the doctors like have um, bought time on PBS to promote their own products. My shows was a legitimate PBS pledge show that was paid, that was um, run and paid for by PBS, you know. Did, did you have like an agent that set this up or did you just hear about it and answer an ad? Because I think it's a, a wonderful success story. No, neither of those things. They just contacted me. That is so, did you ever think you were going to be a TV star? No, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. But you know, you bring up a good point because I do, I do, people don't know this, but I do a little acting and comedy on the side and it is very hard to talk to no one. You have yeah. to be really, it, it is, it's almost impossible. And sometimes my husband used to work in television. Sometimes actors have to do it. It is so much easier when you have a live body in front of you to perform. Absolutely. I couldn't do it. I'm not a professional actor. I, I, I needed people to talk to, to get excited about, you know? Yeah, exactly. But That's why you're so good in front of a live audience. Yeah. It worked though. I think you should do stand-up comedy because I think you're funny. Thank you. Well, I think it's just um, experience of being in front of audiences. The more I've done it, you know, over the years. Yeah. Well, you, okay. So Dr. Ron Weiss texted me. He said, give Dr. Furman my love. And he wants me to ask you about your dog's diet. Well, my dog's diet. Yeah. Well, she's not a strict vegan, but I feed her probably about 10 to 20% animal products, maybe 10% animal products. But the rest of her diet is I give her hemp seeds and, be and beans and vegetables and, you know, anything like sweet potato, oats, tofu. I just mix it all together in a food processor. Um, and I do feed her, you know, berries and um, everything that I feed myself, except dogs can't eat onions and raisins and they, and garlic. And so we just got to pull out the, you know, a little cooked onion occasionally, but, but she has mushrooms in there. She has everything. And then I, then I occasionally give her a, a chicken uh, foot or a bully stick or an egg or an egg without the yolk that I, with shell and all that I blend into the vegetables. So less than 10, you know, about 10% occasional animal products, but I'm, I'm not that she couldn't be a vegan. It's just that, um, I'm doing this experiment um, in dog longevity, you know, and seeing how she does compare, you know, it's funny because my sister is a dog trainer. So a big dog like that's never going to live more than 13 years. And if she lives 14 years, she'll eat her hat. And I said, well, I already have dogs who've lived, for, you know, longer than that, big dogs, you know, little dogs can live longer, but so we'll see how Rain does. That's neat. Well, she's almost like a canine neutritarian. Yeah, she's a canine neutritarian. And boy, is she powerful. Yeah. You know. Her next book can be Eat to Live. For dogs. Yeah, right. <laughs> nice. Yeah. There ever was a next, but I've, there is going to be no next book. Just so yeah. you know. 
Nice. Well, you never know. They never say never. So uh, Kim, yeah. who's watching live, says her husband was able to go off his blood pressure medicine because of following your way of eating. And a lot of people here have watched your PBS special. Cool. Yeah. So I'm really excited because you know, you've been on the show. You come on a few times a year, which I really appreciate. You've been interviewed at every summit I've had. And generally, we just talk like this, which is great. But when I saw this presentation, I said, you know, you need to put it on my channel because then we'll get more eyeballs on it because it's, it's just really important information. Great. Should I start yeah. then? Please. Okay, I'm going to go through this information. I'll try to condense it, you know, and give make the important points. It's always good for people for us to communicate, you to ask me or people to ask questions. So I'll try to condense this. But, you know, us um, plant-based leaders used to run these immersions for Whole Foods Market, and we put these people into a hotel for a week and, you know, immerse them in all this good information and follow their results over a period of, you know, months and years afterwards. And I was amazed by the people that were so excited and passionate about what they've learned and then went back to eating unhealthfully after they went back home. And the, the results were somewhat underwhelming by all the groups and all the doctors, because I think that the, so, and when we did research, we interviewed people, you know, when the, the 80% of people that did not follow the program long-term, we expected, you know, 80% to follow the program and 20% to drop out. And it was the other way around where 80% dropped out and only 20% followed the program. Somewhat, you know, Disappointing, even though it was still considered a success. But the question is, what about studying those people who drop off the program and don't seem to maintain and sustain healthy eating enough? And these groups of people were people who were selected by Whole Foods Market to be to have um, high utilization of healthcare costs and be overweight and have other medical comorbidities. You know, so so we're talking about the experience of of living in the United States and this idea where we get externally generated self-esteem. By externally generated self-esteem, I'm talking about this idea that we're always trying to impress other people and get their approval. And if we don't have their approval and we're not getting their imp impressing them, we don't feel good about ourselves. And that's somewhat unhealthy way of looking at the world. It's not a satisfactory method to lead to long-term um, peace and, and contentment. So we're so so our social pressure in the United States and the Western world is somewhat deviated and unhealthy, just like our diet is unhealthy. So I'm going to go through this a little bit and help people because we found over the years in my years of study and working with thousands of people that the people that can focus on how they see the world and try to be have a more um, generous, gra more gratitude, more compassion for others. Led, leads them and be more of a leader and not looking for other people's approval or the people that stick with the, stick with eating healthfully and can be passionate and love eating this way. So let's go through some basics and then I'll go into this, this in more detail, okay? So the basics are that Americans eat double the amount of calories humans need. And I always say we live on, or we or half of what we eat meets our needs and the other half meets the needs of our doctors because the foundational principle of a nutritarian diet is that we maximize our longevity and healthy life expectancy by having more nutritional bang per caloric buck in our diet. We need a diet with a high degree of nutrients and a full assortment of all nutrients humans need without exceeding our caloric requirements. And so this, it sounds like a joke, you know, half of what we eat meets our needs, but it's really pretty accurate because Americans are eating approximately 
3,400 calories a day on the average. In the, in, for example, in rural China, they eat a, a 1,600 calories a day or 14 to 1,600 calories a day. And our caloric needs of humans are much less, of all animals are much less than what people are consuming. And they can't stop consuming that excess amount of calories. And that's what I'm going to talk about today as to why this drive to overconsume calories is so strong, you know. So keep in mind that we didn't always have such an overweight population, you know, 1,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, you know, there weren't overweight people around and there weren't aren't overweight deer and overweight coyotes and overweight chimpanzees in the, in the jungles. There are no obese chimpanzees. They all eat approximately the right amount of calories and humans generally eat the right amount of calories when they're in, their, in an environment of, of where they're eating natural whole foods, of course. But now we're eating a lot of processed foods and a lot of more animal products than the early humans could sustain themselves on. But mostly it's processed foods and particularly oils. But in any case, in 1920, the average American woman weighed 120 pounds. And in, in the year 2000, the average American woman weighed 160 pounds. You know, we're no longer, we're talking about averages overweight. And the US health authorities claim that 77% of people in America are overweight or obese. And I'm saying that's not true because the reason they're saying 77% is because they use a BMI as a, demar as a demarcation line between normal weight and overweight. And all long-lived people, centenarians, long-lived societies have BMIs below 23. The optimal BMI for a woman is below 21 and the optimal BMI for a male is below 22. So if we use BMI of 23 as the demarcation line, that's very permissive, you know, that's very liberal it's still going to classify 89% of Americans as being overweight, not, you know, not, not 77%. So 89% of Americans are really overweight. And, you know, there's been recent data, AJ, you mentioned in an email of people were saying, don't use BMI as a, as a good methodology for determining ideal weight. And the reason for that is because many people within the normal range of BMI, BMIs of 23, 24, 25, still have body fats above 30%, classifying them as overweight or obese. So just because you have a BMI that's favorable doesn't mean you're not overweight because your body fat can be still be too high. So we want to have a good BMI with good muscle mass and less body fat. That means accurately would use BMI plus body fat. A male's body fat shouldn't be above 15% of body fat and female's body fat shouldn't be above 25%. So I'm saying have a low body fat and a relatively favorable BMI to be more accurate here. For example, I'm almost 70 years old. I'll be 70 years old in December, and my body fat's about 11% now, you know, um, but certainly below 15% is achievable for people, for, for males, you know, and we, we know that healthy, the healthier females are in the 22 to 24% range of body fat even. All right, so there are various elements leading to food addiction and the desire to overconsume calories. And the first one I talk about is the caloric rush. The caloric rush refers to how many calories you can hold in your bloodstream at one time. In other words, if I gave you a couple of tablespoons of olive oil to eat, that's 120 calories a tablespoon, you can put that 240 calories in the blood within minutes. And you eat a couple of pieces of bagel, a bagel and some pasta, and you can eat white flour into the bloodstream almost instantaneously. So I'm saying here that um, flour, sugar, honey, maple syrup, white rice, and even white potato can enter the bloodstream relatively rapidly. 
Um, and fried foods, particularly that goes to extremely rapidly, and oils, the prototype of rapidly absorbed calories. And I'm saying that if you're living in, a, in the jungle or the forest, you can't get that many calories into your blood at one time. If you're eating beans and vegetables and squashes and nuts and fruits and avocado, the, the calories coming in, come into the bloodstream, only come in at one or two calories a minute. You can't even get more than uh, probably 100 calories in the bloodstream simultaneously. So you get, you know, a little bit comes in, you know, a little bit goes out, a little bit comes in, a little bit goes out. You get so much coming in. And I'm saying this high amount of calories into the blood all at once stimulates the brain, the same dopaminergic centers of the brain that are stimulated by an opiate rush or a caffeine rush or a, or a nicotine rush. In other words, the dopamine centers of the brain are stimulated by this caloric rush. It's funny because it reminds me of one of my favorite movies, August Rush. Adrian, did you ever see that movie, August no, Rush? No, tell me about it. Oh, you got to see that movie, August Rush. It's, a, it's a, just a fantastic movie about music and a little kid who loses his parents and he's an orphan. And it's just, it's just a phenomenally beautiful movie. One of the, you know, so write it down, everybody, August Rush. You got to see that movie recommended by me. Okay. Um, so this caloric rush makes the brain over time dopamine insensitive. And you don't even feel normal. You feel somewhat abnormal if you don't have a high amount of calories coming in. So you feel like you eat a meal and you have a couple of peaches for dessert, but that doesn't do it for you. There's not enough calories in a couple of peaches. You got to have something like a chocolate bar or an ice cream or a cheesecake or some French fries or a burger or pizza to get a higher caloric rush because you feel kind of empty and not satisfied because your brain, because you're used to having a, you get accommodative and you become tolerant to it. And you become, you could say, dependent on an extra amount of calories when you're exposing yourself to such an extra uh, high amount of calories in the bloodstream. And these calorically dense foods actually disrupt the brain. So we get, you know, these, so we're saying here is this conditioned learning, which happens in childhood to have extra concentrated calories in the blood, resets the reward threshold. And now a, a normal amount of calories no longer makes you satisfied and you actually crave excessive amounts of food and leads to impulsive and compulsive food intake. And the only way to restore normal brain circuitry is to have enforced lower caloric density food with a decreased caloric rush, which means that you're eating food, you're eating calories, but not getting so much calories in the blood at once. And that means you really have to remove the white flour, the sugar, and the oil, which are the primary controllers of a high caloric rush. You know, a nutritarian diet that I recommend um, differs from the American diet and that the American diet gets its fat intake from oils and animal fats. And a nutritarian diet gets its fat intake from nuts and seeds and avocados, which whose fat enters the bloodstream um, very gradually because the sterols and stanols and fibers release the fat and bind the fat and release it slowly into the bloodstream as opposed to extracting the oil out of the food and taking the oil separately. So I'm saying oil is different from other sources of fat. So it's not that eating fat makes you fat, it's that eating oil and animal fats makes you fat. I wanna clarify that because it's really important because there are lots of studies on this that show that when people isocalorically take out an equal amount of carbohydrate and substitute an equal amount of nuts, they lose more weight, not less weight. In other words, if you kept your diet isocaloric, let's say at 1,300, 1,400 calories a day, and you took out 200 calories of you know, whole wheat bread 
or potato or rice or brown rice, and you substituted 200 calories of nuts, you'd have more weight loss, not less weight loss. So it's a myth to think that there's that the fat itself causes weight gain. It's not true. You have to overeat calories to cause weight gain. So starting out, sugar and flour, they're not food. They're drugs because food contains nutrients for life. And sugar and flour don't contain nutrients that sustain life. They're just containing, and they're just empty calories that flood the body very rapidly. And when the, when the mitochondria and the body's cells try to convert it into energy, you, you need other cofactors like vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals to deal, deal with the reactive oxygen species produced by the conversion of energy. You need cofactors for the Krebs cycle to produce energy. So because sugar and flour are lacking those cofactors, they're inefficiently converted into energy and more readily stored as fat, leaving the body unsatisfied for energy needs. And you start to get um, nutritional starvation because the body is utilizing um, B vitamins and other um, cofactors to turn this, these empty calories into energy. So you build up more toxic metabolites in the body too, which are like lipofusion and free radicals and reactive oxygen species and advanced glycation end products. We have, as a result of eating pizza and bagels and oils and fried foods and French fries and bread and, and cookies and bagels and cereals, and you know, we build up more metabolic wastes. And we have metabolic, the metabolic wastes in the body obviously are a combination of the wastes we are produced by these metabolic toxins produced by eating low nutrient food, as well as exogenous waste from the external environment, like breathing in smoke or eating in pesticides or chemicals or other things in our external environment. So I'm saying that um, you start the stage for rapidly aging the tissues, having a low nutrient pro-inflammatory environment by eating foods that do not contain nutrients. So I'm saying that as we put fat on the body and as we consume low nutrient foods and don't meet the body's nutrient requirements, we'd start to get more fat wrapped around muscle tissue called intramyocellular lipids, which means fat around the muscles and coating the muscle tissue, which then makes the person insulin resistant and raises insulin response by the pancreas. The body's producing extra insulin, which is a fat storage hormone, and the high levels of insulin age you quicker too and promote angiogenesis, which, which allow cellular reproduction, allow blood vessels to grow to feed cancer cells and allow fat cells to grow. So we're, late, we're saying here that... Um, nutrient depletion leads to leads you to feel less energized and more lethargic and you don't want to be a couch potato you don't really want to be active because you're not meeting your nutrient needs adequately so let me just reinforce what i just said here the sfir means sugar flour meaning white flour which is a sugar equivalent white flour is sugar in the bloodstream it's the same thing as eating sugar so eating a bagel or cookies, or pizza, or burgers, or croissants are the same thing as eating candy. The candy, the sugar enters your bloodstream instantaneously. And IR means insulin resistance. So you promote, you actually drive the beta cells in the pancreas to work to produce more insulin, but the cells aren't utilizing it well. So these glycemically unfavorable diets with more flour and more sugar in the bloodstream raise cancer rates, and of course, the cumulative effect of white rice, sugar, white bread, and white potato combined, and these people are eating all these things simultaneously. It's not like you're, um, it's not like you're eating a healthy diet with a couple of dates or a healthy diet with a piece of potato. You're eating an unhealthy diet with potato and rice and bread and, and oils, and you're putting all this together, and it leads to an unfavorable glycemic load in the bloodstream. 
And then the meta-analysis of all these studies on glycemic load and on, on the amount of glucose or sugar in the bloodstream is linked to increased risk of almost common cancers. And white rice, for example, um, is linked to breast cancer the same way. And of course, we know in Asian countries, because their diets are relatively high in rice, when they start including oils and meats and they start you know, soft drinks, when they start adopting more American ways, they're, because their body is so glycemically sensitive to already from all the white rice, they develop diabetes at a much lower body weight than people in America do. So we have an epidemic and explosion of diabetes in Asian countries in China right now and South Korea, because obviously they're already eating a diet that's relatively high glycemic and they put these extra little extra stress on top of that high glycemic diet and it tips them over to, to the diabetic threshold very easily, even with lower body weights. And then these combination of animal products like meat and chicken with the sweets and, and you know, like the, in the bloodstream creates an unfavorable growth of pathogenic bacteria in the gut and yeast forms in the gut. And that leads to, um, you know, poor gut health and poor digestion and immune and suppressed immune response. So I'm saying here that this spike of sugar in the blood and the spike of insulin is, is promotes the aging process and suppresses immune function, increasing risk of infection, including pneumonia, you know, and of course it shuts down gene silencing, which means that we all have some abnormal or defective genes and a high nutrient diet with lots of vegetables, beans, and nuts, encourages gene silencing. Our body can recognize abnormal gene sequences and silence them before they can create a problem. But then when you eat unhealthfully, you allow unhealthy genes to express themselves. So we are not a product of our genes. Our genes are a product of what we eat. And we have abnormal genes if we eat unhealthfully. And when we eat healthfully, we have normal genes. And when we eat unhealthfully, we have, normal, we have abnormal brain function. And it suppresses attentiveness, behavior, energy levels, um, sustained, you know, your, and your passion and creativity about living. So we know we get more, the more you're diabetics, for example, are more dementia, have more brain shrinkage, have more depression, have lower energy levels and have lower ability to concentrate and be creative. So the brain, so we're talking here about these high glycemic diets being linked to poor school performance, poor job performance, and poor performance in your ability to be satisfied with your life and to be happy. So the brain's under attack. And when you cook food in oil and you fry foods, it gets worse because the oil is not just fattening, but when you heat oil, you form uh, toxic compounds and they put, you know, um, toxic, like glycidols in oils when they use the chemical extractions to get the oil out of the food it came from anyway. So even the, so oil fried foods are pretty carcinogenic and obviously, you know, we know we have the stroke belt and the heart attack belt in the southern parts of the United States where they eat more fried foods. And the Sydney Diet Heart Study showed vegetable oils more dangerous than red meat with regard to heart attacks. So vegetable oils are dangerous, especially when they're cooked. And I'm saying here the ridiculous statement that even olive oil is a contributor to breast cancer. How can I say such a ridiculous statement as that? And that's because it keeps people overweight and being overweight increases risk of cancer. And if people cut out the oil, they would much have an easier time losing weight. So the oil is not just, doesn't just contribute to their body weight because it's calorically dense. It also is an appetite stimulant and a stimulant of the brain to desire to be accommodative to more calories. So it leads to overeating behavior.
Consumption of oil leads to more overeating and the lack of satisfaction with the right amount of calories. So the American diet is very toxic. We build up these aldehydes in the body with free radicals, other toxins, and we, you know, and then we get exposed to toxins from our external environment as well. You know, chemicals on the job, we inhale chemicals, we put chemicals, plastic chemicals on dental floss, we have chemicals in our toothpaste, on our skin, you know, we breathe in chemicals from fumes and pesticides and we eat foods with chemicals on them, you know, and then we get eat processed foods in plastic bags and, and fast foods and processed foods are a chemicalized mess, you know, so we get more hypersensitive and we become more immune dysfunction. We get more dangerous sensitive to a, a, a stressful event. And then we can develop, um, you know, memory loss, tinnitus, headaches, dizziness, heart problems. You know, we just, the immune system goes haywire from all of these toxic elements in our environment and in our body. So fast food in particular means that I'm saying fast food, meaning foods that you absorb fast, not foods you buy in a fast food restaurant, not only foods you buy in a fast food restaurant, but all commercial baked goods like Italian bread and how, you know, are, are, are um, digested rapidly, contain synthetic and even toxic and even carcinogenic ingredients. They put sodium benzoate in Italian bread to make it softer, you know, which is a class one carcinogen from the, US, from the World Health Organization. But they're highly flavored. They're designed to be addicting. I'm saying right now that processed foods are designed to get people hooked on them. And, the, and your risk of lifetime exposure to these processed foods, and even two servings a week doubles your lifetime risk of depression. So these fried foods, commercial baked goods, burgers, sausage, pizza, fast foods are linked to depression in a dose-dependent manner. And because they're linked to depression in a dose-dependent manner, and most people do not become depressed eating them, I'm explaining here that most people have their emotions blunted and they developed what's called, um, they become dysthymic. Dysthymic means you're not depressed, but you're not that excited about living. And you're not passionate about the things in your life. And you just live to sustain your addictions. Like you work a job to make money so you can drink alcohol and, and go to fat and eat food, but you're not, you know, to enjoy eating, um, you know, addictive and overly stimulated food but you're not really excited about living. So you're overly dependent on alcohol, stimulants, drugs, food. Your life revolves around food. Your life revolves around getting stimulated by these substances because your innate functions, your innate executive function based on, you know, your creativity, your compassion, your good, your excitement about the world around you, your appreciation of beauty, your interest in other people and other things are somewhat diminished in proportion to your addictive drives are allowed to be controlling your life. So I'm saying that these addictive drives take over the primitive brain in a dis disproportionate way to the primitive brain starts to drive your behavior and you have increased reliance on meeting the needs of the primitive brain of addictive substances, which then has a balancing act. The more the brain is taking, the primitive brain is taking over your behavior and the executive brain is not, the more you become almost in a prison of hopelessness because you're getting cravings to do, to behave in a manner, to eat unhealthily. And, these, and that competes with your desire to appreciate the world around you and to get pleasure from the world other than food and you become more dysthymic and more unhappy and more reliant on food as your sole source of pleasure 
and in your life. So the brain is under attack. It affects your structure of the brain. It makes you behave more impulsively and in your own, not in your own best interest. So I'm saying, why would people eat in a manner and why would they behave in a manner not in their own best interest? Shouldn't you love yourself in a way to, you know, behave in a way that's best for yourself? That's most, you know, you know, so we're in any case, um, I'm talking about this, that, um, that these thoughts and your opinions about the world around you in somewhat take over your life and you become more narrowly consumed with meeting your needs for addictive substances and the rest of your life becomes less important and the rest of your, your purpose as a human becomes less important. It somewhat makes you more narcissistically consumed with consuming substances. And the more you're a drug addict or a food addict, the more you're an addict in general, the more you're, you're, the more you're narcissistically consumed with meeting your cravings and needs and you're not more interested in having goodwill for others. You know, so we're saying here, um, you're altering your brain and you're altering your behavior. And we know, for example, that children in the highest quintile, the highest fifth of candy consumption in childhood, have a 60% chance of being arrested for a, for a drug-related offense or a violent offense by the time they're 35 years old. We're talking here about the fact that eating unhealthfully and eating junk food and fast food and candy is linked to drug-related behavior because the brain starts to um, be governed by the need for stimulation, you know. So going on here, the point I'm making is that it's not just you have to be crazy to eat junk food and fast food, but it actually makes you somewhat crazy because you're raised on these foods, it has negative effects on brain development. So now I'm also suggesting that there are multiple mechanisms of addiction. And I'm not going through all the mechanisms of addiction here. We could be here all day. So I'm just going highlighting some of the major mechanisms. The other major mechanism of addiction has to do with detoxification or withdrawal. So detoxification and withdrawal mean the same thing. It means if you're drinking 12 cups of coffee a day and you stop coffee, you're gonna have bad headaches. If you're smoking a pack of cigarettes and you stop cigarettes, you're gonna feel uncomfortably um, agitated. And if you're eating unhealthfully and you stop consuming the high salt fried foods and high sugary foods, you're going to feel enhanced fatigue, agitation, be somewhat shaky, and even feel flu-like and, and more, you know, and the, but the major symptom people feel is fatigue when they don't, and they, and because they think fatigue is somewhat linked to hunger, they want to eat more to curtail the fatigue, and they don't recognize the fact that the fatigue is a product of their withdrawal from their toxic diet, which goes away when they get, you know, in a week or so. So let me explain this, because what I'm saying that when you're eating food and digesting food, your liver is busy. Your liver is busy, you know, taking those calories and storing them as glycogen. When you're in the digesting phase, which is the called the um, anabolic phase of the digestive cycle, you're building the body with food, eating and digesting it. Then the body is not in a detox mode. Your body is in an enhanced repair mode in the, when you're not digesting food anymore, when the digestion has ceased. And it's when digestion ceases, when the glucose curve comes back to normal, is when people start to get symptoms of detoxification, of being shaky and headachy and stomach fluttering and, and a little bit hangry or irritated or don't feel comfortable because detox from an unhealthy diet can make, give these uncomfortable symptoms. 
that people think is hunger because they're relieved by eating. So the second type of addiction we're talking about is the withdrawal addiction you get from eating unhealthy food. And it's predominantly fatigue and people wind up thinking they have to eat to keep their energy up. Now, how could they be eating to keep their energy up when they're overweight? Why can they just burn the energy on their body fat? They need to eat to keep their... So if people are thinking they need to eat to keep their energy up when they're overweight, then you know that they're eating from an addictive withdrawal. It's a toxic hunger and it's a symptom of withdrawal from their low nutrient body. You know? We're looking here for a high nutrient diet with the ultimate result of having a high nutrient density in our tissues, right? Of our cells having a high nutrient density so our cells function normally. And so in the catabolic phase, when we're not digesting food, that's when you know we get these symptoms and people can't burn off the calories they ate. They put calories in their body and the minute they're digested, they wanna eat again. What about waiting three or five hours and letting the calories be used up? It's like, before you want to eat again, it's like filling your car with gasoline, driving it around the block, and then want to fill it again with gas before you had a chance to burn off the gasoline in your, in your tank. So people don't want to burn off the gasoline in their tank before they eat again. They just want to eat again because they don't feel well when they stop digesting. So therefore, they don't have a, a fixed amount of gasoline that can fit in their tank because the body is elastic and it'll put weight on the body. And, the, and as you put weight on the body, you're speeding up your metabolic rate, raising your body temperature, burning off the telomeres and your stem cells and aging yourself rapidly. And you, so, you, so frequent eating is tr tremendously aging of the body. So you would not, so people are not eating in response to hunger. They're eating in response to what I call toxic hunger with a, it's a withdrawal symptom of a poor diet and on chronic overeating. And I'm saying most people in America never felt true hunger. They're all overeating. They're all food addicts. Food addict, food addiction is so ubiquitous that even the people discussing food addiction are food addicts themselves. Even people that are not overweight are food addicts. They're still overeating and shortening their lifespan with consuming too many calories. Even people at normal body weights are usually eating more calories than they need and not eating a diet with enough um, nutri nutrient concentration. When, you, when you're eating the more attuned with the nutrients and calories you need, when you become the expert in you, in other words, this is a science and this is an art for you to develop the ability, the right types of food and the right amount of food and the right timing of your eating cycle to be your, at your own perfect weight with good musculature, good fitness, not being hungry, not being too thin, not being too heavy. You want to be at your perfect weight and you want to figure out what's the right amount of calories for yourself and what's the best foods that make you thrive. What I'm saying here is that generally speaking, the less calories you eat, the longer you live, as long as you don't get too thin, right? Because being too thin could be not favorable either. We want to be at your perfect weight. So you have to be that perfect expert in you. But generally speaking, the less you eat, the longer you live, as long as you don't get too thin. So toxic hunger leads to overeating. People want to go from, they digest one meal, they want to start eating the next meal. The minute they're finished digesting, they eat foods that are like pizza and burgers and things that are in, in meats and things that are hard to digest. And if you take and eat just too much calories, the meal takes much longer to digest. So you keep digesting right to the point when you finish digesting, you're going to your next meal or you're even eating again before you even finish digesting the first meal. So toxic hunger leads to people's inability to feel comfortable in the non-digesting state. They might even feel like they want to eat food in the middle of the night to wake up to eat something or to eat something at bedtime because they're not even, because they want to eat, keep food going all the time. They don't feel well, they're not constantly eating. So toxic hunger is headaches and weakness 
and stomach cramping and fluttering and irritable and angry and weakness and fatigue and mental fog are all symptoms of addictive withdrawal that you get when you eat Americanized food. Real hunger, true hunger is felt in your lower part of your neck and upper part of your chest right here. True hunger is felt right here and it's not uncomfortable. If I'm coming home in the car from work and my friend calls me and says, hey, there's a tennis court available. You wanna go play a game of tennis? I'll say, sure, we'll go play tennis. Even if I'm hungry, I'll get into tennis, I'll be exercising, the hunger will go away, it'll come back when I finish playing. It's not uncomfortable, I have to eat, but it's a drawing sensation that is accompanied by increased taste sensation it makes food taste better. You don't want to eat when you're hungry because then you enjoy food more. So this is why diets don't work because people are not seeking nutrients and fiber and volume and, they, and they're not improving the quality of what they're eating. And animal protein, because of the nitrogenous waste and sugar and white flour and caffeine feed toxic hunger because they lead to more withdrawal in the catabolic phase of the digestive cycle. You know, So here's a study on over 700 people that showed that these people following a nutritarian diet had a changed perception of hunger. They no longer felt hunger in their head or in their stomach. They felt in the upper part of their neck, but it took an average of six months of eating healthfully for people to be in touch with true hunger, a certain degree of weight loss and concentration, nutrients and tissues. And they also reported they built their taste muscle to enjoy eating healthy foods. They didn't need to be overstimulate their bliss point with high sugar after about six months salt, high sugar and salt after adopting lower sugar and salt intakes for six months as well. So you change, your food preferences change. So let's review this a little bit. Let's go over what we're saying here. Number one, the excessive stimulation with dopamine from alcohol, caffeine, opiates, and high caloric rush, the high caloric rush, high sugar rush in the bloodstream leads to becoming dopamine insensitive and then your dependency on more stimulating substances and more calories. And the brain becomes more inflamed when you're eating unhealthfully. And then you're eating all these high, the calorically, calorically stimulating foods and you don't, and your taste buds weaken over time, and you don't enjoy foods that aren't overly seasoned and overly flavored and overly salted and overly sweetened. You're completely unsatisfied unless you're consuming an amount of calories and an amount of flavor that's unnatural to the human species. And then you become emotionally dependent on dangerous food because your life is not satisfying enough because your creativity and your brain fog has been interfered with and your ability to think clearly is somewhat impeded and your brain becomes more directed to going after stimulants and food as opposed to going after of enjoyment of the external world and being interested and passionate about the beauty of the world or, the, or getting things done or, or being a, leaving your mark on humanity or having goodwill for other people. In other words, all these things, the drives that fuel human behavior are lessened as the drive for food, addictive substances, and going after that dopamine bliss point is accelerated. Drug addicts are not the best people to be, to have the best father, the best friend, the best person driving for betterment of society are not gonna be people that are addicted to substances because they're because the addiction is somewhat weakening their ability to have compassion and goodwill for others. So addicts behave and, th and can think irrationally and be self-destructive 
and be destructive to others. Even the, even the, the people who are addicted to power and junk food you know, can go out, can be so consumed with their own narcissism that they don't really have, are not truly compassionate for the, you know, for the people around them. So we have to try to oppose this because I'm saying something I think is unique. I'm saying that food addiction leads to the, the focus on the primitive brain, which interferes with, the, with the, your greater purpose of your cerebral brain. And you can't have sustained happiness being an addict because you've taken away your brain's ability to be at peace and to get comfortable with, your, with other non-food sources of emotional stability and emotional pleasure. So we have a nation of food addicts. Their people are thinking about food, they have cravings, they overeat, they're overweight. Why would you eat more food than you need? Why would people have fat on their body? Why would they eat foods that are self-destructive? There's no fat people, there's no fat animals or fat people in human history other than, you know, kings and queens that kind of are over-consuming food. But, you know, why would you eat yourself into diseases and when you know it's better not to do that? And the reason is because the food is highly addicting and you're raised in a society where everybody else is an addict and it's almost impossible not to behave like everybody else does. So you go to an airport and the addict goes to the airport without food with them so they can smell the cookies and smell the bagels and smell the pizza and say, well, I have no food with me, so I have to eat something unhealthy or there's nothing served on the plane, so I have to eat whatever they give me, right? So the, that's, that's how an addictive an addict thinks. They come up, they put themselves into positions and their, and their primitive brain is creatively rationalizing why it's okay to behave in a self-destructive manner. And there's really no excuse to, to self-destruct yourself. Excuse is no excuse. People, an addict comes up with a million excuses why they can't eat health unhealthily. And the main reason they can't do it is because they don't feel comfortable because they're going after the approval of other people because their self-esteem is externally generated, not self-generated. They're looking for the approval of other people and the other people are addicts. And they don't want to give you approval if you're not eating the way they're not sharing and vibing in their addictive substances with them. So overeating is an ethical dilemma here because a life without purpose and without passions and without interests can increase your risk of self-abuse. And as you go after food as your source of interest and as your source of meeting your needs for stimulation, it makes you have less purpose in your life. So to change, to, for, for many people to get rid of their addictive relationship with food and to lose weight and be comfortable with less calories, they have to change the way they think, not just the way they eat. So let's talk about this externally generated self-esteem, increasing the risk of failure and generating more internally generated self-esteem with mindfulness and being a leader, not a follower. So I'm saying here that the more you are indoctrinated in American style society where you're trying to, you know, post Instagram and get all the likes or get people looking at you because you look better, or have more money or have a better job or a better athlete or a better this or a better that, or trying to, or the innate desire of people to bully other people, to, to be, to talk negative about them, to have contempt for them, to think less of them, to try to put them down, to take away their meaning, to make a person in an in a unfortunate position to not have an, a depth and insides and value as much as your own, to take the meaning and value away from people, to feel that you're superior to them. There's this desire in humans to go after power and superiority. And I'm saying that our, our, um, we encourage that in this country. Many people even vote for it in their political 
in their in this political climate. They're going to go after power and suppression of other of individuals and not seeing people with the in a way of, with kindness and compassion and goodwill we should have. And I'm saying that expanding our creative goodwill is a way to build internally generated self-esteem. We don't need the approval of other people when we're using creative goodwill. If somebody accosts you and says to you, like, if I had to eat that way, I'd rather be dead. Who wants to live on carrots? You know, if I can't eat healthfully, what's the point of living? So now the question is, are you, my, your mindful response is, am I reacting to protect my ego? Do I want to put this person down so I can feel superior to them? Or is my response, my pause to think of the right, you pause and have space here because is your response to show them some degree of kindness and to have creative goodwill for them? And the creative goodwill has no expectation of outcome. You're making an attempt to help them and you're showing an interest in that you care about them. You may not have a good effect on them. It may not make them live healthier, think happier thoughts or be a better person. It may not have a better effect on them. But the fact is that you made the attempt with no expectation of outcome to make an attempt to be created, to creatively have a positive effect in their life. This small dose of kindness as opposed to react and protect your own ego is how you build, how you show that you care, show people you care about them and how they now have the opportunity to, to accept your, your kindness to them. If you don't show people you care, then they are going to push you away and not think about what you're saying and how you can be useful to them. They're not going to respect what you're saying. You first have to show them you care before they're going to consider what you have to say. So we're trying to generate self-esteem internally by appreciating the world around us and seeing value and beauty in people and things and nature and individuals and trying to respect and appreciate the beauty and worth of others and either people that are different than us, people that have suffered, people that are immigrants, people that come from other countries, people that are suffering around the world. In other words, what is your purpose in, in living here? What is are you, are you trying to be? And I'm saying here that we develop this socialization process in America that makes it difficult for people to change the way they eat because you're not going to build approval from other people because we're going after externally generated approval from having people want to make fuss about us and be and see. We want to get people to, we want to rate ourselves based on how people see us. And you're going to get disapproval and ostracized and making other people uncomfortable when you eat healthfully and they're not. Because let's face it, the rest of the world are food addicts and they don't want you to be different from them because you're making them uncomfortable. And you're going to get negative. And our studies of why people do not succeed with healthy eating after they learned it and realized the value of it, demonstrate that most people can't do it because they go after externally generated self-esteem and they can't eat differently from other people because they don't get their approval and they get too much disapproval and they then break down and start eating into, and because it's hard enough to break an addiction when you're getting the approval of others. It's hard enough to get off cigarettes, even though everybody's approving of you quitting. It's getting, it's hard enough to get off alcohol when you're live, living in a bar and working as a bartender or something, but when you can't, and, and you're also hard to get off alcohol if you keep drinking. And it's hard to get off junk food when you keep eating it, you know, because it keep, cause the, cause the chronic exposure to these substances that light up your brain, it lights the fires of your desires. And you, then you never feel you, enough time is placed, placed between you and that addictive brain stimulating substances. 
So we have to generate internally generated self-esteem by being a role model, which then gives us more power to have goodwill for other people, more power to have be a better role model. So we get proud of being a health nut because we want to be a good role model to be in good health. So when we speak about health, we get more respect and more people want to come to us for information. So every, my experience with all these thousands of people that have lost 50 to 150 pounds and kept it off for, for years are people that are feeling they've actually got the superpowers to be useful to other people because of their own, um, their own ability to create good health for themselves. So let's, so diets fail because they're nutritionally inadequate because they lack sufficient green vegetables or a green vegetable dependent animal when they use concentrated calories like oils, flowers, and sweets. And that can include things like oat flour and, you know, anyway, um, susceptibility to peer pressure comes from the lack of self-generated self-esteem and no period of enforced abstinence where you're not staying away from your addictive substances. You're still imbibing on them. You're baby stepping your way to good health, which doesn't work in most cases. Because for an addict, still imbibing in the things that recreating with food that, are, that you're addicted to just make you want them even more. They, of course, some people require a period of enforced abstinence by telling everybody you know what you're doing and being proud of it and not looking for their, not needing their approval is what helps people sustain healthy eating. So what I'm saying here is we're mindful in the way we eat. We're mindful in the way we look at food. We look at the bok choy with wonder and you see the beauty in it and the miraculous healing it does for the body and the beauty in a peach or a fig or a berry. It's just remarkable what nature can produce to benefit the human species. How food is such, how it has such beauty. And, and so we are looking for beauty around us. We're seeing, in the, we're seeing beauty in the, in the food and we want to, savor that food, appreciate it, eat it slowly, chew it well, and think about if of everything that goes in our mouth, if we're caring for ourselves rightly with what we're putting in our mouth. And we don't have to react negatively to an insult or a negative input from the external world because we, because our ego, you know, we don't try to protect your ego. That's not going to make for your emotional health. You want us, you need to pause and have a space between the input and the reaction, right? The, the, so you have an input and you have a reaction. You have the space and then you have a, a reaction or result. So have that space and think and think about now, how can I have creative goodwill for this person? How can I have a good effect on this person's life? Because that's gonna be the best way you're building up your own self-help, your own health and your own self-esteem. Not your ability to better this person in an argument or to put them down or make them feel uncomfortable, make you feel superior. That has no long lasting effects and leads to more guilt, leads to more agitation, leads to more unsatisfaction with your own contentment. You become more unsatisfied when you're trying to compete with other people and being more negative. So love your, loving yourself means caring for yourself properly, putting the best food in front of yourself, eating the best foods, but it also means treating other people with kindness and treating yourself with kindness and having more compassion. So this leads to what I'm saying that when you eat right and you eat a healthy diet, it gives you a better brain function, better executive function in later life. That better executive function in later life gives you the 
build up, you become the best version of yourself, the most creative and intelligent version of yourself. You become a better artist, a better musician, a better farmer, a better, you know, architect, whatever it is you want, a writer, whatever it is that makes a better make working with clay or better, you know, whatever you want to do with your life that you enjoy, you're going to be better at it when you take better care of your health. You get more ability to have more fun in life when you eat healthier. You don't get more fun in life when you recreate with food and destroy your, your and ruin your brain and your body. So a nutritarian diet is a vegetable-based diet. It's not a grain-based diet. It's not potato-based. It's really, we're looking for an assortment, a wide variety of vegetables here because the widest variety of vegetables makes for the healthiest microbiome and the healthiest micronutrient exposure. So we have this unprecedented opportunity in human history to eat a diet with a wider variety of food. I mean, we can get lettuces in the wintertime and watermelon and blueberries and, you know, and beans all year and nuts. We can get all these healthy foods all the time that, that our ancestors maybe didn't have access to. We can do better than the blue zones can do. We can push that envelope of human longevity and live in great health from nine to a lifespan, a normal lifespan between 97 and 107 years old. So a nutritarian diet is not restrictive in natural foods. It's just restrictive in unnatural foods like oils and of course, animal products, which are not just overly calorically concentrated and, and drive aging of tissues and more inflammation in the body, but they're also heavily polluted. They also contain more toxic waste products, you know, and even, even wild animal products, especially seafood, are now contaminated with microplastic particles and, and other toxins from, from agricultural runoff with, from um, causing cyanobacteria and BMAA to be in you know, food. So we're having more toxic waste in, our, in animal products besides their effects on um, unfavorable effects on hormones. In any case, um, a nutritarian diet, um, and here's an example of a, you know, of a simple skeleton, which people can repeat. Uh, I want to keep the skeleton simple. And we do it at our retreat here where we keep breakfast pretty simple. So people can go home and they know exactly what to eat for breakfast. They can change the grain, but they have about a half a cup of cooked grain with a couple of tablespoons of brown seeds on top, like flax or chia with one cup of fruit and some plant milk. And then for lunch, they have a large salad with a nut and seed based dressing and a bowl, a full bowl of vegetable bean mushroom soup and, and some fresh fruit, one or two pieces of fruit for dessert. And for dinner, they have raw vegetables they didn't eat at lunch, like carrot sticks and peppers and jicama or snow pea pods with a dip, like a hummus dip, a salsa dip, or a guacamole dip. And then a cooked vegetable dish, a large cooked vegetable dish with mixed vegetables, right? Mushrooms, onions, beans, or intact whole grain or starchy vegetable, and dessert. And I'm saying here that dessert is important. Dessert is good. And the reason why dessert is important, because it marks the end of eating for the day. You try to finish eating by six o'clock. So you have four hours before, and you try to have dessert, a small dessert before you got full. So it helps you stop eating before you ate too much. So it marks, so I have a little bit of, you know, a half a frozen banana with a couple of walnuts mixed with some vanilla bean powder, or I have a little baked apple with some, you know, avocado icing on top or whatever it is I'm eating, or I'm having some frozen cherries, a frozen mango or frozen, where I'm eating a dessert because I need a, because I'm satisfied with maybe a, you know, a, a cup, a small cup of a dessert here that I can eat. And I said, that's it. I'm done for eating for the day. I had my mango. I have my 
you know, my couple of figs or my baked apple or my whatever it is I'm eating. And I have, and I've eaten a moderate amount of food for dinner. I don't need any more. I can brush my teeth. I can floss or water pick. I can clean the kitchen, put the, close down the restaurant and now recreate the rest of the night with either activities, dancing, hiking, watching, watching a movie, singing, playing games, playing cards. You look for other and interesting conversations with people. You look for other activities that are not food related between, between six o'clock when you go to bed at night. You don't do activities that involve food. So it marks the end of the day, it increases satisfaction with less calories at night, and you shut down the restaurants and you get assistance and camaraderie with non-food activity. That's the secret. And if you're having trouble eating the right amount of calories, you eat larger portions of low calorie food, not smaller portions. And there's so many foods you can eat that are low in calories to make yourself more satisfied, right? Eggplant, mushrooms, cauliflower, tomatoes, onions, artichokes, zucchini. I love steamed artichokes. I steam them, don't blanch them, don't boil them because they're more flavorful. You steam them for 18 minutes. Once you cut them in half and you take out the choke, then you cook them for 18 minutes. You steam them for 18 minutes and think about an artichoke, how high in protein that is. And when you eat the combination of greens and some beans with lunch and with dinner, you have some beans in the soup and some beans with your dinner as well. And you have greens with both meals, lots of big volume of cooked green vegetables at night. And you have some nuts and seeds, about a half an ounce to an ounce with each meal. So a person who's overweight can have between one and a half to two ounces a day, about a half an ounce with each meal. Or a person like myself who's more physically active can have an ounce or more with each meal. But in any case, the little bit of nuts and, and beans and greens increases your ability to be satiated for long periods of time. It reduces your desire to want to eat food for hours and hours and hours. And it keeps the protein concentration of the meal high to support a high level of physical activity and, and exercise, whether it's hiking, whether it's biking, whether it's swimming, whether it's weightlifting, whether it's physical conditioning or, or Zumba classes, dance classes, or running or jogging or allosthenics, whatever it is you're doing, you sustain better exercise tolerance when you have beans, greens, and nuts and seeds, making the nutritarian diet higher in um, fat and higher in protein than, other, than some other low-fat plant-based diets. In other words, it's not 80-10-10. It's not 80% carbohydrate, 10% fat, and 10% protein. I'm saying those is why studies on vegans is showing more risks of atrial fibrillation and, and more risk of osteoporosis because their diet is not rich enough in, the, in beans and nuts and greens, which increases your muscle strength with aging, better muscle retention with you increase protein bioavailability with aging and sustains you for better physical activity in later life. So we're trying here to maintain musculature and brain function with the right protection for the brain with the right fatty acid exposure on a nutritarian diet. So I'm going to finish this up now and show you a picture of the back door of my eat to live retreat with the open doorway into the kitchen area there, because I deal with people who are, who have trouble um, eating healthfully and sustaining it. So we want people to come. So some people come to our retreat and stay here a month or two or three to, to, to learn the tools and to practice eating healthfully so they can go home and reproduce this easier. But to the vast majority of people, you can learn this. You can learn this with books, videos, and there's an online support and all the things that all these um, people are giving you support all over the internet, like AJ, you can, and there are groups all over the place to get the support you need. And of course, 
it's really worth it. It's worth it to take good care of your health because the rewards are going to make you more content in life, happier and healthier. There's no reason to live like other Americans and get the, tra the tragedies that befall others around you. So good luck with your good luck with your efforts to live a healthy life. Oh, this was a, such a wonderful presentation, Dr. Furman, and I've seen it and I still enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you so much. You know, you mentioned at the very beginning about dopamine insensitivity. Is that something that if people eat healthfully long enough, it can be restored? Yes, absolutely. But keep in mind, it, it slowly restores itself over a period of months, not a period of weeks or days. That's why when you um, go to a cocaine rehab for center, center, they keep you there for a minimum of 90 days because they know if they let you go in a month, you're still going to crave, still have cravings, and you're not going to have your dopamine come back to normal. So you need time, and you need three. So it's very important the first three to six months. And I'm trying to encourage people to not to baby step the way into this, but to make a make a commitment to living healthfully, because you, the more you live healthfully away from those addictive triggers, the more the dopamine in the brain and the brain comes back to normal. We build back the new brain pathways. With with um, you know, with the, with staying away from the foods that are your addictive triggers, of course, like yeah. sweets. You know? And that's why when people do these challenges for maybe even twenty one days or thirty days, it's just not long enough for many people. That's correct. They're doing a challenge, and unless they the challenge could work if they kept doing the challenge after they left. But if, if they just do it temporarily and they go back to eating unhealthily again, go back to these, it just leads them to this this diet mentality where they're going on and off diets. We don't want people to go on and off different ways of diets, so on and off detoxes, and on and they they really have to learn to live healthfully and make changes they're going to stick with for the rest of their life. You've said that temporary weight loss is of no use, right? Uh, you know, when people, what one of the things I hear from people is that they they're just not satisfied. And it's not because of the volume of food, because a lot of times these programs, even though the food is low caloric density, they don't give them a limit. But is that because they're going from a higher fat diet to a lower fat diet? Is, is that what the missing is? No, they're not satisfied because it's not a caloric, enough caloric rush. They need something with a more caloric concentration. They need oil, fried food. They need uh, ice cream, a cheesecake, a burger, a pizza. No matter how much they eat low calorie food, it's not going to be satisfying because they're not going to get enough calories until they hit the dopamine centers in the brain. They need the caloric rush. That's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, the fat, the oil can give you the caloric rush, especially if you put sugar and oil together, especially if you mix fry something. You know, a French fry is sugar and oil together. So French fries will do it for them, but not just a plain potato. But, but maybe they can get that caloric rush with, um, you know, with a donut or a pizza, piece of pizza really does it. They have the white flour with the cheese on top. They'll feel satisfied with a piece of pizza or a burger. And they'll, they'll, but I'm not satisfied eating plant food. I go hungry an hour later. It's not that they're hungry an hour later. They're just never satisfied what they call hunger, which is their need for this high amount of calories that infiltrate the brain all at one time. And if they've been eating that way for a long time, it's going to take some time for them to, to appreciate and to enjoy the food that we eat. That's absolutely true. They got it. That's why when we, when we call it enforced abstinence, people have to stay on the program, whether they feel like it or not. 
they're not going to feel like eating this amount of calories. They're not going to feel like eating this amount of food. They're not going to hit their caloric rush. They're not going to hit their bliss point. And they're going to feel somewhat empty and fatigued, especially for the first week. And then they're going to feel okay. And they're going to get used to it. And the more they do it, the more they're going to accommodate to it. So just like you accommodated the X to, to preferring an excess amount of calories, you accommodate to prefer the right amount of calories. So I eat as much, sorry. I eat as much calories as I desire, but the amount of calories I desire is the right amount. Because I mean, you know what I mean? Your body gets used to it instinctually. Sorry about that. We have a little bit of barking here. So what they're feeling is, is these, these symptoms of detox in a way. Yes, it's detox. That's right. So that if it just explains why the conventional American way of eating is so addictive. Yeah. And some people, I mean, I've heard people say they, they have, you know, nausea or, or diarrhea or vomiting or headaches. And it's a real thing, isn't it? When people are coming off the standard American diet. I've even seen them get a low fee, low grade fever and feel fluish, you know, body aches. And so we're saying here that that's right, that the body uses these extraordinary means of elimination as a means of protecting itself from toxins. And those um, can be those symptoms can be uncomfortable, but the uncomfortable symptoms are beneficial to the long-term survival of the, of the organism. And they should not be suppressed with Tylenol, with aspirin, with Motrin, with caffeine. With We shouldn't be drugging away these symptoms of the headache and, the, and trying to use stimulants. We should just let it pass, let the body do its work and let the detox end itself, finish its, its work so you can get back in touch with your own body's instinctual drives. That's why it's probably so helpful to go to the eat to live retreat because you got them locked up and, and you give them the time they need. It is helpful for many people. I'm very blessed to have be able to have people to help people this way. Yeah. And to feel that if they connect. give up before that if they give up before they have to keep detoxing over and over. They just need to get through it. Yeah, and even when I, you know, my latest book is Eat for Health, but even when I wrote Eat to Live like 20 years ago, I still wrote don't follow this diet. Don't change the way you eat until you study and understand the whole book and get all this information. Because unless you understand the nature of food addiction, unless you understand how to oppose that, you're probably not going to succeed changing your diet. So first learn about food addiction, how to um, oppose it and learn how to deal with it. And then and what to expect. And that's going to enhance the ability of you to be successful long-term with dietary change. That's what I love and appreciate about your work. You said something today. I wrote it down. Brilliant. We are not a product of our genes. Our genes are a product of what we eat. Right. That's good. That's a good one. You know, you mentioned that oil is a powerful appetite stimulant, but isn't sugar and salt maybe to a lesser degree also an appetite stimulant? Yeah, I'm not weighing or giving a measurement for which is stronger than the other. You know what I mean? Um, but yes, oil is a powerful appetite stimulant. And the reason I mentioned that because people know salt is bad and they know sugar is bad, but they think oil is good. So maybe I focus more on that because people think like oil is healthy for them because they've been brainwashed to think pouring olive oil their food is going to be good for them. And while they can, but where, where what's going to happen is it's going to prevent them from losing weight and going to keep their desire for excess calories um, fueled. You know what I mean? So yes, sugars and salt and oil are all appetite stimulants. Yeah. And would you say flour as well? Flour products? Flour is sugar. Flour is sugar. Right. Exactly. Well, well you sugar, know, we have white flour is a sugar equivalent. 
Yeah, exactly. We have people in, you know, even in the plant-based world that are medical doctors that are, you know, touting olive oil is, is helpful. So people get confused, I think. Where do you stand on bread in general? Because, you know, people say, well, Ezekiel bread's healthy and it may be healthier than white flour, but I find it's still pretty calorically dense for a lot of people to have. I do think Ezekiel bread is okay, though. It's a sprouted bread that's not as glycemically unfavorable. I certainly have one slice, you know, with a bean burger or something, and then you have green vegetables with your meal or something. It's not going to be push your caloric content over the meal. It's certainly reasonable people have 400 to 500 calories a meal and have a 90 calorie slice of healthy bread like that. So I think it's okay to have a piece of one slice of bread once a day or so. I don't have it every day myself, but I do have some Ezekiel bread in my diet because it's a really... Um, it's a sprouted grain that's not glycemically like, like, like whole wheat flour is much glycemically unfavorable compared to sprouted flours and sprouted mixed grains and Ezekiel bread is certainly the best commercially available bread. Yeah. Um, hey, are you familiar with pacha bread? You might like that. It's literally two ingredients. It's buckwheat and a little salt and that's it. Really? Well, yeah, but um, maybe okay. But I, you know, if a little, I wouldn't really... Yeah, and I know Zika doesn't have much salt, and most of them are really low salt, yeah. too. Just can um, people eat one slice of bread? I don't know. Yeah, you know, I even took those Ezekiel burger buns and cooked the two, took the top half and cut it in half, and the bottom half of the bun and cut it in half, and that one bun was for four people with a, with a bean burger on top of it and tomatoes and lettuce and sprouts and ketchup, you know, and healthy ketchup. But in any case, yes, I think that um, that people can, if they understand the this science of food addiction, how the body controls its caloric driver, they can be comfortable with the right amount of calories, and they can be comfortable with 400 to 500 calories per meal if they're overweight. And they can adjust that amount of food so they're losing at least two pounds a week. And they can feel satisfied with that by, by making it. I think they're not going to be satisfied with that we're not going to be as satisfied if they're not hitting all those factors of all these nutrients and all these different types of food in the, in the meal. So yes, you can be satisfied and certainly you can overeat on any food you can overeat, you know, but in any case, most people having balance in their meal feel more satisfied with the right amount of calories. If they have more of a balanced meal. Right. Dr. Furman, I want to respect your time. Eight people submitted questions in advance. Would you like to answer them or we can have you back? Whatever is best for you. How about five more minutes? Okay. Um, I don't know which one to get to, but the, the one that I sent you on email, the person asked what you thought about the BMI being changed for, um, you know, uh, U.S. Doctors Group Docs new, new policy on healthy weight assessment. Do you I'm remember sorry. that? I was article. dealing with the, you sent me a, say that one. I'm sorry, because yeah. I was. That's I was great. I sent you an article from Medscape. U.S. Doctors Group adopts new policy on healthy weight assessment. And the person that submitted the question, Bonnie, asked what you thought of that. Um, oh, I think I already, I already commented earlier that, yeah. um, that it's a result of that, that people whose weight might be, who not be in the obese category, in the overweight category, even the normal category could still be too much, too overweight because their body fat is still too high. So, you know, generally speaking, you know, they're, you, you don't go by, I don't go by the conventional thinking um, because they're just trying, they don't know what optimal health is and what an optimal diet is and what an optimal weight is and an optimal body fat. Their idea of what's optimal is so far from optimal, you know, because they're looking at averages. So we're looking at people who want to be, have a healthy brain and a healthy body into the late nineties, you know, and that's so our criteria is a little stricter. 
Great, thank you. This is uh, from Carlene. Dr. Furman, what causes some people to overeat or binge on nuts and seeds? Well, you know, there's all types of people that are so used to binging and so habituated to overeating that anything that has a concentrated calories will be will entice them because they, you know because nuts have more calories and and dates you know and raisins have more calories and they'll eat you know bars and you know they'll just try to do anything to get that to stimulate the caloric rush. I don't really want people to eliminate nuts and seeds to get rid of their desire to overeat them. I want them to learn through time how to be how not to overeat them, how to learn as opposed to just pushing them all out of your diet, which then can increase the risk of atrial fibrillation or having a cardiac arrhythmia or other types of, um, or not absorbing nutrients or other types of um, increasing more or certain types of morbidity. I'd rather them figure out what is the, by the causes of their overeating behavior and restrict that overeating behavior over time so they get comfortable and get their body gets acclimated to a lower amount of calories with a balanced diet. I don't see extreme fat exclusion is the answer for most people. I don't think it's a, good, a great way to to um try to curtail be, that problem. Would I would just uh, would would it be okay? Because there's another question about nuts from Marsha, who says, "Dr. Furman, I'm trying to lose and stabilize stabilize my weight. Nuts are a problem for me. They're a huge trigger. They send me over the cliff. Why do you have it in your must-haves daily for health? And could somebody like that maybe use flaxseed or chia seeds instead of nuts? Is that acceptable?" Well, it's the same caloric density. The, yeah, flaxseed, chia seeds, and walnuts and hemp seeds are the most high omega-3 nuts. The high ALA content is responsible for protection against the heart, against atrial fibrillation. So that you need a certain amount of ALA in your diet. And so those are the most beneficial things to utilize. But I'm saying that you're not eating free nuts. You're making a little sauce or a dressing. You're measuring out a half an ounce with each meal for a total ounce and a half a day. And if you measure out a half an ounce with each meal, then you're, it's not going to trigger, it's not, you're not eating free nuts, like you're not eating free, free dates, you know, you're allowed to have one piece of dried fruit, one day a day in, in a dessert or something, you know, but it, what I'm saying is, if you get, that's why we're controlling what people are eating with it, we're enforcing that, they're only, no, they're measuring out, they're measuring a half an ounce with each meal, which is only one tablespoon of ground seeds with breakfast, if that's the one tablespoon of ground seeds is a half an ounce, it's only like a little small, like, you know, four to six walnut halves is your half an ounce. Or, so usually you're blending it into the salad, making it, adding it to your dressing. And you are not going to become, it's not going to drive you to consume more food if you stay long enough and strictly enough on not having more than half an ounce with each meal. I think for some people, just having them in the house, they'll keep going back to them, you know? Um. Well, then they need, this, they, they could keep going back to any kind of food, but they're still food addicts then, and they got to figure out what the cause of their food addiction is. And we're talking about that today. Of yeah. their, their need, they have some emotional needs and intellectual needs that are not being met. And they're, they're still trying to enforce, to get rid of food addiction by like, you know, by not having it in the house, but really that's going to leave your person, then you're on a diet mentality for the rest of your life. We prefer to people to be able to be in touch instinctually with the right amount of calories, not crave any food or have abnormal behaviors or binge behaviors. And that takes time of repeating and repeating the correct behavior. So repeating the correct behavior, even though it's difficult at the beginning, the more days you put that together, the easier it gets. And we're saying 90 days minimum on the correct behavior. So a person's having this behavior, they need somebody to help them enforce the right behavior for a couple of months so they can lessen the desire for that port for that unfavorable behavior. 
And if they go to the Eat to Live retreat, you'll teach them how to do that. Well, I don't want to give the impression that all these people have to come to the retreat to do it too, because they don't have to come here. They could learn how to do this on their own. But a lot of people need some extra support. That's true. Great. Well, Dr. Furman, this was a wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Good luck to everybody. Thank you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Love. Please come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. Pacific time. My guest is Dr. Jeffrey Redinger discussing his book, Cured. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.